Hello, Legends. Before we get into the episode, I just want to quickly tell you about a brand new show that I have just released. It's called Crime at Bedtime. And as the name suggests, it's been designed with those in mind who like to go to sleep at night listening to a fascinating true crime story. We'll release a brand new episode every single Monday, but right now there is a stack of episodes for you to binge straight away. So go check it out. It's called Crime at Bedtime. It's available wherever you get your podcasts from. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. When we think of whistleblowers who have risked their lives and their freedom in the pursuit of keeping those in power accountable for their actions, I think one name will stand at the forefront of most. Australian-born Julian Assange. We publish CIA reports all the time that are legitimate CIA reports. That doesn't mean the CIA is telling the truth. Who founded the now infamous WikiLeaks in 2006. He would gain worldwide attention in 2010 when WikiLeaks would publish a series of leaks from US Army intelligence of footage from airstrikes conducted by US Apache helicopters in 2007 during the Iraq insurgency. These airstrikes would claim the lives of several people, including two journalists and civilians. The crews can be heard laughing about some of the casualties. Item all up. Come on, fire! In November of 2010, Sweden would issue an arrest warrant for Assange for questioning in an ongoing investigation. After losing his appeal against the warrant, he would breach bail and take refuge in the Ecuadorian embassy in London. A security camera shows the rooms inside the Ecuadorian embassy where the WikiLeaks founder languished under diplomatic protection and therefore immunity from arrest. Yahoo News reported that while Assange was holed up for his fifth year in Ecuador's London embassy in 2017, the CIA and the Trump administration debated plans to kidnap and even kill the exiled journalist. He would be granted asylum by Ecuador in 2012 under political grounds and fears of extradition to the United States. However, this was later revoked in 2019 and British police were invited into the embassy and he would be arrested. That breaking news, WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange arrested in London. London police have arrested WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. Here you can see him being dragged out of the Ecuadorian embassy by British police. He was convicted on breach of bail and sentenced to 50 weeks in prison. 
since 2019, has been held in Britain's maximum security prison, Belmarsh, ever since, as the United States continues their efforts to have him extradited. Julian Assange started his campaign of whistleblowing almost a decade after Annie Macron and David Shaler would go out against their own employer, MI5, a decision which would see them wanted and on the run. Because it had created such a big scandal, uh, we knew of high-value targets. My name's Jack Lawrence. Welcome to Wanted. I'm a wanderer of the soul Before the end I plan to behold But I know I'll lose myself along the way What's gone is gone What's past is past Let me leave what belongs in the past So Annie and David had been privy to information from within MI5. Information that concerned them. Mistakes that had been made by the organisation. Mistakes that had had catastrophic consequences. However, Annie says it was the mere fact that they were seemingly not willing to learn from these mistakes and things were essentially swept under the carpet which didn't sit well with her and David. She does also point out that there were plenty of very successful missions for MI5. I mean, there were, there were other operations that were very successful. And that's, again, part of the weird bit, because you know the full story, and then you see the little bit in the news, the national news, and you're sitting there thinking, this is a good result, but it's just the tip of the iceberg. And that, again, goes back to the plate of glass that comes down between you and the real world, psychologically. Very odd watching that as well. So, um, you know, I'm not trying to just diss the intelligence agencies. A lot of very good people go and work there for the best of intentions, and they do their best to try and protect their fellow systems. Um, it's just when things go wrong, they can go very badly wrong. And if there is blanket secrecy, that can, be, that can cover up mistakes so they don't learn and they don't get better in the work of protecting their fellow systems. That bit, I think, yeah. is yeah. the key bit for me. David will be moved from his position at T-Branch, focusing on the movements and actions of Irish terrorism, and is sent to G9 Branch, which handled Middle Eastern terrorism. David would be the head of the Libyan desk. It would be while working here that he and Annie would be made aware and witness three key cases being handled by the International Terrorism Section. The first being an illegal wiretap of Guardian journalist Victoria Bretain. For reasons far too long-winded and complicated to go into here, but essentially the warrant that was granted in order to tap her phones was illegal, and MI5 did not obtain a court order in which to do so. The entire operation was built on flawed intelligence and bad judgement. Even once MI5 management learnt of the issues, they would continue to violate the law. The second was a case of wrongful conviction against two Palestinian students based in London, who were convicted of conspiracy to bomb the Israeli embassy in 1994. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. On July 26, 1994, on a sunny day in London, a smartly dressed woman, said to be of Mediterranean appearance, would drive a grey Audi through police checkpoints at Kensington Gardens. London's main diplomatic quarter. She would park the vehicle next to the Israeli embassy. She was quickly picked up by security surveillance and a policeman from the Diplomatic Protection Corps was sent to investigate. She would tell the officer she was visiting the flats next door but was first going to buy some cigarettes down the high street. A few moments after she vanished from sight, the bomb exploded. Mr. Minister, uh, do you have just one comment at all on this uh, London bombing? I haven't got many details, but... I have the details. It was a car bomb, and apparently one of our uh, employees at the embassy warned the police. So, happily, nobody seems to be hurt. Witnesses would say they saw debris rise 100 feet above the trees. 13 people were injured, but luckily, no one was killed. A second bomb would go off five miles north, shortly after midnight. In January of 1995, six Palestinians would be arrested. Only two would be convicted for conspiring to cause explosions and sentenced to 20 years in prison. According to Annie and David, MI5 possessed information that was never released to the defence, which they believe would have likely changed the verdict of the jury. The two men, who have always maintained their innocence, would end up serving 15 years each in prison. However, the final case, the one that broke the camel's back, so to speak, the one that made them resign, was a failed assassination attempt. You've spoken as well in the past about the, the Gaddafi, the, the failed assassination attempt is another situation that was involving the MI5. You say that someone, can't remember the term you used, but an off-the-street person came in to suggest that they would like to get rid of Gaddafi, essentially. So this guy was walking to the Tunisian embassy um, in 1995, I think it was. He was a senior Libyan military officer. 
and he was he ended up being codenamed Tunworth. And he went to the embassy because that's where you always find the MI6 officers, the James Bonds. So he just literally walked in and said, I have a cunning plan. And um, there were a few sort of international meetings across Europe and money was handed over and all the rest of it. And then David, who was the, he was the Libyan desk at that point. So he was running the team that was investigating any threats about Libya or from Libya at that time. And he was called over to MI6 for an in-person briefing rather than on secure telephones by his counterpart there. And he was briefed about this operation that was going to go ahead. And he thought, well, oh, sounds a bit, you know, MI6 probably won't happen. They're always coming up with these crap-brained, you know, James Bond-type plots. Most of them don't happen. But he still reported it up the line when he went back to MI5. And then a few weeks later, there was a series of reports coming across his desk saying that actually there had been an attack um, it had gone wrong. Innocent people had died, including innocent bystanders. And Gaddafi, of course, survived to be assassinated another day, which was in 2011, in the full glare of international media. But back in 1996, this was seen as super secret because it's illegal to assassinate foreign heads of state. And it turned out that this operation was illegal under the terms of the Intelligence Securities Act 1994, where you have to get the sign-off for otherwise illegal activities from the foreign secretary if you're MI6. Though Gaddafi still described himself as a poor Bedouin and insisted on being interviewed in his tent, I asked him about stories that had been an attempt to kill him. Of course it is true. And uh, it, it happened against me, of course. And uh, Britain uh, was behind this uh, timbit of uh, assassination. So every which way, this was, um, uh, to quote an American phrase, a goddamn clusterfuck. <laughs> legalities and results. So that was actually the case that um, really pushed Dave over the edge. And we went through a, a number of discussions trying to work out how best we could deal with it. I mean, we'd raised our concerns on the inside and we're just told to follow orders. Um, a number of our colleagues were leaving at the same time because they had ethical concerns too. And we decided to try and make a difference, which is why we went public and blew the whistle. So David decides this cannot go unchallenged. And not only should they leave, but also he's going to leak what he knows to the press. Um, in fact, I think his first words were, let's go out to dinner. Because he didn't want to talk in our flat just in case, because we, you know, in case we were bugged. bugged yeah. So we went out, yeah, went out to a random restaurant and had a conversation about this. And uh, both of us were pretty disillusioned at that point after all the stuff we'd seen going on, not just the, the bit after the plot was the straw that broke the camel's back, yeah. so to speak. It was a very hard discussion. I was particularly concerned about the implications for our family and our friends. And I was right to be. It was a fallout afterwards, Jesus. Um, and it took a while for the whole thing to build up anyway because David had to start a conversation with a journalist and then there was a sort of very long courtship between the journalist and him because the journalist thought it might be an MI5 sting-type story yeah, plan right. and David thought he might get shot. So that took a few months too, which of course ramped up the tension. But he kept me pretty much out of that loop because he wanted to protect me. So the less I knew, the less vulnerable I'd be. Actually, I was going to ask a question. I thought, no, it's a stupid question, but then you mentioned there that David was concerned that he could get shot. Did you genuinely fear for your lives, like with what you were doing? Yes. At certain points, we did. 
And we were right to, because there were certain instances where our lives were definitely at risk. <laughs> it's ridiculous. I'm not saying, you know, MI5 or MI6 were out gunning for us, mm. but there were other um, situations where um, people wanted information. Mm. And I, and I suppose MI5 and MI6 probably would have had would have known if there was something going on against you, but it wouldn't have been any loss to them if anything happened to you guys. Exactly. I mean, this is the ultimate irony. You know, if you're working on the inside and you're running an operation, no matter how tricky it is or how dangerous it is, often as the officer running the operation, you're the most protected person there. So you are very little at risk. Mm. Um, as soon as, of course, you step outside the organisation, you're fair again. Leaving, however, was not a case of simply drop everything and run. It would take around eight months before David and Annie would leave the country. And in that time, they spent their lives watching everything they did and everything they said, especially in the confines of their own home. Did you guys resign once David had already built this relationship with a journalist who was like, okay, yep, great, let's run this story, and that's when you resigned, so you had to keep up sort of appearances while this was going on, this courtship was going on? As far as I know, he had made early contact at that point, but beyond that, I know nothing. So I just (laughs) went out, got another job, pay the rent, all that sort of shit, and that's what he did too. And it took a while. He also... um, put out a story that he, well, it wasn't a story, it was true, he was writing a novel, a sort of spy-type novel, just in case any sort of word had got out that he might be talking to interesting people. Um, so, yeah, that's pretty much all I know from that period, apart from feeling pretty stressed and not being able to talk to any of our family or friends, honestly, which is horrible. So, and I, I'd imagine, as you said, while you're at, at home, once you've resigned and you're just at home going about your normal life, you said, David, when he first announced, sort of suggested to you, he took you out of the house because of the concern around bugging. I'm assuming you were always probably very careful about what you spoke about, where you spoke about it, you know, and never within the home because just in case they, they, uh, they did bug your house. Totally, yes. So one, the interesting bit after we resigned was that, you know, we'd had a very social life within MI5. As I said, you know, it's quite incestuous in that way. Yeah. Many people you can really hang out with. And so in that year, uh, 10 months, I think, between resignation and... Was it 10 months? Eight. Between resignation and going on the run, we kept getting invited to leaving parties from our friends within MI5 who were all leaving for the same reasons, which is really weird. <laughs> wow. And we'd sort of turn up, and even the ones who weren't resigning, they would say, how did you get out? Who did you speak to? How did you get the next job? So it wasn't just us with the ethical concerns. A lot of our peer group had those and wanted to leave, which is actually quite sad because I think these organisations need people with a strong ethical framework. As I say, with some morals. Keep it on, yeah, keep it on the right path. In terms of the trust and living without the sense of privacy, that actually became quite excoriating even then. And I think my family, my mother and my father, certainly knew something was up because I wouldn't talk about most things on the phone because yeah. I was worried about the communications. And there were certain indications as well that they might be onto us. Suddenly, um, David's old boss, for example, was ringing him up saying, hey, let's meet up and things like that. So the hackles go up. You know, it's, it's the animal instinct, isn't it? Eight months of back and forth and relationship building cemented David and the journalist would break the story. And it was time to leave.
I remember Dave coming home and we went out for dinner and um, he just basically said, this is going to break this weekend. So it, I think that was a Tuesday and we went on the run on a Saturday, which was the 24th of July, 1997. So what we thought would be a slower process suddenly accelerated massively and he had to go into the newspaper and do all the debriefing and write the stories and all that sort of stuff uh, in those days. So I was left with the happy task of um, trying to organise the exfiltration out of the UK, which I did. But it was um, tricky. Um, there was a lot of running around London using you know, red call boxes and taxis and things. Did you have a plan of where you were headed? It was a tricky one because it was a huge bank holiday weekend and I think I got about the last two tickets out of London on a flight. We had to fly out on a very, very early morning flight to Amsterdam and um, David and I met in a crappy hotel near Heathrow that evening before. I set about four alarm clocks to make sure we got the flight. I remember as well when we were sitting in the plane and the, the tyres left the tarmac, it was like, thank God we're out of the country. Now we just have to get through the you know, security at the other end in Amsterdam. Welcome to Amsterdam, where the local time is approaching 5.45pm. Keep your seatbelt fastened and remain seated until the seatbelt sign is switched off. Doors are open and you're invited to disembark. Take all your personal belongings with you, check in the seat pocket underneath the seat and in the overhead. So we landed there and then we went on the run all the way around these strange little towns in the Netherlands. And then we hightailed all the way down to the far southwest of France, then across France and Spain, all the rest of it. So it was a month of literally being on the run. And we knew we were being hunted by the secret police, special branch, and also by my five. So it was a very surreal experience as um, gamekeeper turned poacher, I suppose it's a phrase. The Metropolitan Police's special branch in the UK was a unit formed in 1883. It was tasked with combating the rising threat of Irish Republican terrorism. Over the years, this unit was tasked with many aspects of counter-terrorism and undercover infiltrations into organised crime groups, as well as trade unions. It would later become the executive arm of MI5 in dealing with espionage cases. And, of course, tracking Annie and David. You worked in that organisation and you know the tactics that are used to find someone. So I suppose in a way that gives you an upper hand um, in knowing what to do and what not to do. So what, what was your main, you know, okay, we cannot do this, we cannot do that. You know, I'm assuming no credit cards. <laughs> uh, no, absolutely. Um, no ATMs, all that sort of stuff. Um, no, it was, it was cash only. If we had to grab some money in a city, we would then leave that city and move as far as we could on some intercity train as quickly as we could so that they would miss us. Also, it sounds really crappy, but, you know, simple disguises like, you know, I am known for wearing black. I've got blonde hair, all the rest of it. I just put my hair my hair up and wear beige and I could disappear. It was much easier. So, yeah, and that was also the days when you could check into a hotel without having to give over your passport. Yeah, right. So you could use fake names and all that sort of stuff. I mean, now it would be exponentially harder. Unless you've got the skills of someone like Edward Snowden or beyond now, it would be incredibly hard. Edward Snowden 
is now, of course, a household name up there with the likes of Julian Assange when it comes to well-known whistleblowers. Breaking details on that whistleblower who leaked top-secret documents by the government surveillance of Americans. Edward Snowden... The latest on the international standoff over NSA leader Edward Snowden. What would you do about Snowden? I think he's a total traitor and I would deal with him harshly. He was born in June of 1983 in North Carolina to parents Lonnie and Elizabeth. His family was in fact full of employees of the federal government and in fact his own grandfather was a senior official at the FBI for many years, including being at the Pentagon on September 11. A computer whiz, Edward would attend a job fair in 2006 focused on intelligence agencies and would be offered a position with the CIA. And so began his intelligence career. In 2007, he was stationed in Geneva with diplomatic cover. While there, he was widely considered the top technical cybersecurity expert, which saw him in fact hand-picked to support the president at the 2008 NATO summit in Romania. Edward would resign from the CIA in February of 2009 and would begin working for the computer company Dell. Dell manages computer systems for multiple government agencies, including the NSA. Snowden was assigned to an NSA airbase facility near Tokyo and instructed top officials on how to protect themselves from Chinese hackers. He maintained his job with Dell until 2013 when he would quit his job after he says he witnesses the director of national intelligence lying under oath to Congress. What I wanted to see is if you could give me a yes or no answer to the question, does the NSA collect any type of data at all on millions or hundreds of millions of Americans? No, sir. Around February or April of the same year, Edward began working with a journalist at The Guardian. And the first of the initial articles based on the leaked documents that he supplied was published on June 5th. On the 23rd of the same month, Edward travelled to Russia from Tokyo, where he'd been when the articles were published, with a plan to continue on to Cuba. However, the US would cancel his passport in an attempt, he says, to make him look like a Russian spy. Edward would apply for asylum in over 20 countries, four of which would offer him permanent asylum. However, there were no direct flights to any of these countries from Moscow, and with the US pressuring countries along the flight path to detain him, he would decide to seek asylum in Russia. Edward Snowden would manage to avoid being arrested by authorities and made his way to a country with no extradition treaty with the United States. Annie and David, however, were running around Europe, countries where their former colleagues could most certainly follow them. Even then it was hard enough because we knew all the techniques and because it had created such a big scandal, uh, we knew were high targets, high value targets. So it sounds crap to say that, you know, it's almost like self-aggrandizing because, you know, they were after us, but they really were. We caused such a huge amount of embarrassment. Did you, did you have any moments where you felt like you may get caught at any stage? Yes. The first one... <laughs> being um, very early on, actually, because we, we went on the run on, um, I think it was Saturday the 24th, and David did his first big media interview on the Monday. It was Newsnight, which is a big BBC flagship news programme. And they came over, and we rendezvoused with them in Amsterdam, at posh hotel. And um, the guy who did the interview, I think, of course, ratted us out and said, this is where they are. So 
the next morning, very early, I was like, up, 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 we've got to go, we've got to go, flap, flap, flap. And Dave was saying, oh, no, they won't find us quickly. And from what I heard afterwards, they got within an hour of us. So it's just like, we've got to go, we've got to go, go now, come, come, sort of thing. And so living like that is really weird, especially with a recalcitrant boyfriend who thinks that you're just being paranoid. <laughs> You know, obviously you're saying they were they were after you, special branches after you, MI5 is after you, you know, the, your high value targets. So when you say they were there, they missed you by an hour. Do MI5 have the power of arrest? I mean, what would they do? They just bundle you in a van like it's some sort of movie or something? I mean, how does that work? Uh, MI5 does not officially have the power of arrest. They always have to work through um, police. Local authorities. Legally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't mean they always... Um, anyway, um, yes. So they would have to liaise with the um, Dutch... Uh, AIVD, I think it's called now. Um, and then the AIVD would have to talk to the police in Dutchland, as I call it. But um, I don't know. There were various other instances as well where they, I think they almost caught up with us. But thankfully, I have a very finely tuned paranoia antennae. I mean, I'm sure you're just looking at any out of place van, car, person, constantly looking over your shoulder. And so you can't trust anyone at all. No. And also um, just the idea that, you know, any if you book anything um, online or via phone or whatever in those days, that hotel room or restaurant or whatever could be bugged. I mean, things like that, or even your handbag. So you want to meet and talk with someone on a park bench. And this is old Moscow rules from John McCurry. And there could be, you know, these long distance transmitters that can pick up what you're saying. So it actually can drive you daft. And when I'm saying this, it probably makes you makes me sound like a mad but I'm really not. No, I mean, this I... is old 90s text. I mean, it was just more uh, work intensive, but um, yeah, it's much worse now. So Annie and David had a plan. The plan was to create enough of a media storm to create change, to make people ask questions and want answers. The problem was they needed the media in which to do this. Little did they know they were just days away from a news story breaking that would not only take over the British media, but the world media. What we had planned um, was the idea that we'd create a bit, a bit of a scandal and therefore there would be a certain reaction, which would be let's gag David Shaler and let's gag the media to make sure further revelations can't come out. And we thought that would be good. And that's what happened in the first week, which was great, because then, of course, the national media comes out saying you can't gag us with the free British press. And then Princess Diana died a week after we went public in that horrible accident in Paris, which wiped out any other news story. Um, For weeks. So we were just, yeah, we just found ourselves lost. So we lost that um, media support in terms of pushing for an inquiry, pushing for a reform of what the spies were doing. That was our, our game plan. And so we found ourselves sort of lost in France. Now, Annie and David faced the decision of what to do next. And it would be Annie who would initially head home first, knowing full well she would be arrested. In fact, she would hand herself in. And she could also be facing a lengthy prison sentence. I had always intended to because um, we left with such a bang, you know. None of our family, none of our friends had any warning. So the first they all found out was the front pages of newspapers. And each of them had some particular horror story about how they reacted to that. So I always knew I'd have to go back. Um, but at that point, I was just the girlfriend. And um, I flew back voluntarily, accompanied by my lawyer, who was the head of Liberty, a lovely man called John Modern. Liberty is like the ACLU in the, UK, in the US. And um, turned myself in. 
So I got arrested. I got threatened. I was interviewed for hours, but didn't say anything. And um, was held on police bail for six months. So I was allowed to go back and forth between wherever David was hiding in the UK. But I still had to go back every month to answer the bill. So it was a tricky few months. They basically held me over his, his head like a sort of Damocles as a threat. You know, if you keep talking, we're going to do your girlfriend sort of thing. And also they did it to his brother and his two best friends too on trumped up charges. It was very messy. But after six months, they did drop it. They did drop those cases. There was nothing. There was no case. That was the key point. It was just the threat to try and keep Dave in his um, in his pen abroad and let the story die down, die down, die down, and everyone forget it. And there'd be no more scandal and no more calls for reform. It was um, a weird few months. David would also eventually return to the UK, but would not have his charges dropped, and in fact had already spent time in prison in France prior to returning to the UK. First of all, when the Brits tried to extradite him in 1998 from Paris, and um, he was banged up for four months then in a very notorious hellhole called La Sante Prison. And then the French said he was a whistleblower, um, and they did not extradite people for whistleblowing. Um, so we were free to live for another two years in Paris more openly, but still very surveyed. Yeah. And then eventually, after two years, he went back to face the music, to pay the price, his debt to society. Um, went on trial and went back to prison. But in fact, his, um, his sentence was only six months. And the trial was such a kangaroo court, it really was. He wasn't allowed to say anything or question. Or you, There was actually a super injunction gagging the journalists from even mentioning the Gaddafi plot because it might have influenced the jury during the six weeks term of the trial. So the, the media was not allowed to talk about the Shayla case, which was pretty big at that point. And the only thing I think he was allowed to ask about in court was the rules and regulations in MI5 or something like that. It was so surreal. So, of course, he was convicted. There was no defence. And the only time either of us had a chance to say anything about why we'd done what we'd done was after he was convicted but not sentenced. And he was allowed a mitigation plea. And I was sort of lobbed into the witness stand to do that and try and explain why we had done what we'd done. So instead of getting two years or 13 months, whatever the judge was planning, he got six months. I find that fascinating that they even bother having a jury trial when they don't allow any defence. It's like, what is the point? It's, it's almost, it's laughable. It's like, let's, we're going to have a jury trial here and put you on trial, but you've got no defence, so. I think I suppose uh, justice has to be seen to be done. Yes. And it's not done. That's the key point. But yeah, it was, it was incredibly hard to go through that. I mean, six weeks. For some strange reason, I was allowed down in the well of the court. I mean, you think about your stereotypical British Old Bailey Court, right? Yeah. It's all going to be oak panelling and galleries and you know, judges and wigs and all that sort of crap. And it was. So it's all, dying, it's all designed for a sort of theatre. And strangely, I was allowed down in the well of the court, sitting just behind Dave and his team, which is unexpected. And right next to me were the, the benches containing the MI5 officers. They're looking at me sideways, you know, all the way through six weeks of trial. It's horrible. I'm glad to be out of prison. I shouldn't have had to spend four months in prison for criticising MI5. This is a very happy day for me in civil liberties and a very sad one, an embarrassing one, for MI5 and the government. You, you've spent a number of years paranoid and, you know, being followed and 
It must have affected you psychologically. Are you saying I'm nuts? <laughs> yeah. You'd have to be, surely. I mean, you've been <laughs> on the run for years. Your phones are tapped. We're going to terrify MI5, take you at any minute. I mean, it must affect you, surely, Annie. Of course it does, yes. And um, uh, after David had paid his debt to society, he was a free man in 2003. I mean, both of us sort of came out of what had been seven years of this whistleblowing bloody case. It's sort of like you, um, you come up for air, suddenly you surface, and it's like, well, what now? And it became very difficult. So one, we wrote the book about the whole thing. And this is a really old book, and I'm not terribly Spies, used lies, it, and... it. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that one. And that took a year and a half to get cleared by MI5. And we got involved in, this is, of course, the height of the uh, run into the Iraq war, post 9-11, all that sort of thing. So we got very involved in the stop the war issues and campaigning around that. But it's still, well, where now? What can we do? Mm. You know, we've no other big organization is ever going to employ us because we're whistleblowers. How do you rebuild a life like that? So David went down a certain path and I chose another one, which is why we separated in 2006. And after I had taken that other path and got very much into a lot of campaigning, I met a lot of very interesting people, most notably hacktivists, actually. So I sort of ended up diving headfirst into the sort of European hacktivist scene. I don't mean hackers. It's no, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hacktivists. Yeah. Um, which I found fascinating because it related to a lot of what I'd known, but also related to a lot of what I wanted to learn. And that's what I've been doing ever since. So I think one that was good because it gave me a certain backup in terms of tech security and help with the paranoia. And two, it means that I can do something moving forward that I think will help a lot of other people just trying to explain what the tech situation is and how vulnerable people can be, um, both you know individually, familiarly, community, societally, dem- democratically even, to try and take stuff forward. Um, learn from the old mistakes, learn from what is possible and what was possible, and learn why certain rights are so damned important for all of us if we want to take our world forward. So that's that's how I survived that process. Obviously, you know, when you guys first left and you, you went down the track of whistleblowing, you had this idea of wanting to, you know, bring the attention to what was going on behind the scenes and the mistakes that were made and issues that were going on within these organisations. Do you think you accomplished what you set out to achieve if you did have something in mind to achieve? No. I think it's a basic answer. Yeah. Um, partly because of bad timing, partly because you're in your late 20s and you know stuff and you think you can do stuff, right? I mean, Edward Snowden was 29 when he went public as well. Yeah. So there's a certain um, energy there. What you don't necessarily realise is that the monolithic sort of bureaucracy will grind on and on and on, whereas you're only one person or two people or whatever, or a few people or activists, an activist group. So it's very difficult to try and keep going or try and find new people who will take it forward and keep going to make that change. I don't want to sound overly pessimistic. I think you can shift the discussion and the awareness and you can form the ongoing and future debates, which is what I still try and do. But in terms of creating a bit of a scandal and having a big change, that didn't happen. And I'm really regretful of that. And what I find very distressing is, of course, what's happening with the new updated proposed Official Secrets Act, because that's going to get worse and make it harder. What I found very interesting, though, um, I mean, I used to write and speak, um, I was very outspoken about the whole Wikileaks case. Julian Assange is not a whistleblower. He's a high-tech publisher and an award-winning journalist, by the way. And Australia should be defending him 
But um, so then we had the Snowden stuff, and he was the one who rescued Snowden from Hong Kong. And that's even a decade ago. And then weirdly, we had the um, Tejera case, you know, the guy, uh, military guy in America that was releasing information uh, a couple of weeks ago, who's been arrested. And um, he was just confirming all sorts of horrors that the American government is still doing and war crimes and all that sort of thing. But he was using not the old mainstream media and not WikiLeaks. He was using social media to spread the word. Not obvious open social media, but I think it was Discord it started out and then it started tweeting. Mm. So there are evolutions and various ways that people on the inside can get information out. But the risk is still the same. So the fact that despite all the hideous previous examples, um, Snowden came out straight after the Chelsea Manning case and knew the risks and still did what he did. Um, others have come out after, immediately after other hideous whistleblown cases and the penalties faced. Um, and people still will do it. There is a, a drive for freedom and a drive for human rights, I think, in most decent people that we all need to remember. And if people on the inside come out and try and do something like that, they're doing it for a damn good reason. And they need all the support they can get rather than believing the crap that's in the media, you know, the disinformation, the lies that might be spread about them. It's not about the personality, it's about the principles at stake. And that is what everyone should always remember. And if we don't stand up for the principles at stake, we will end up in some hideous totalitarian police state or, you know, whatever. Or we will lose our basic freedoms. And that is the key point I would like your listeners to take away tonight. During the course of my chat, you may notice at certain points, Annie was very careful about what she said and even caught herself at one stage. Obviously, she still has to remain very careful with what she says. But I didn't realise just how careful until she said this. So I'm sitting here in front of my computer, which is open source, which I hope is safe, but probably not, with my computer covered. But I'm absolutely certain that my phone is compromised. So I do my interview stuff, my media stuff via this phone. Um, but yeah, I have no concept that I have privacy here now talking to you. So you're of the you're of the absolute positivity that your phone is currently being watched by somebody, or it's you know it's under surveillance of some form. All our phones are. Right, but I imagine I mean, yours yours, yours may be more than mine, <laughs> or maybe mine <laughs> maybe mine's now going to be more focused on. <laughs> I want to say a huge thank you, of course, to Annie for coming on and telling me her incredible story. She has a book out called The Privacy Mission, Achieving Ethical Data for Our Lives Online, the details of which and a link to which you can find in the show notes of this episode. I, of course, want to thank all of our guests on season one of Wanted and to you for listening to our first season. If you enjoyed the show, I would love it if you would leave us a rating and a review to help other people find the show and help people directly find the show by telling them about it. Tell your friends, family, people in the next to you in the car, just yell, listen to Wanted. Uh, and of course, if you're looking for another podcast to binge and you haven't already heard about it, we have another show 
called One Minute Remaining, Stories from the Inmates, where I interview men and women incarcerated across the United States for various crimes. There's over 100 episodes for you to binge right now and you can check it out wherever you're listening to Wanted right now. So until next time, stay out of trouble. And if you do end up on the run, you know who to call. I'm a wanderer of the soul Before the end I plan to behold But I know I'll lose myself along the way What's gone is gone What's past is past Let me leave what belongs in the past Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.